Hey, I'm here with John, and today we're uh, tackling, I think, a really important and significant issue. That it, it's kind of a twofold issue dealing with the Thomas Aquinas on evil. And what we're uh, getting at then is the different world, the different sensibility uh, that marks Aquinas and those prior to Aquinas, and then that will come after Aquinas. And sp- the, the problem of evil, and of course, is the marker then of a shift in thought. And that's what uh, John and I are going to talk about. Uh, is to get a handle on uh, a kind of different, the different world, I think, that uh, Aquinas and pre-moderns and medieval, uh, you know, at least you know, prior to Aquinas, uh, that there was this shared understanding uh, and that we've lost that. Uh, John, give us, a, give us the sensibility there. Run that down for us a little bit. Yes, yeah. Um... For you know, Aquinas dies in twelve seventy four, and it's amazing how quickly things change after his death. Now, not that if he you know he may have lived longer and people would have started repudiating his work uh, even during his lifetime, and it isn't as if Aquinas was in the Middle Ages even just the accepted teaching on um, you know any particular issue. He was trying to write the Summa to be that to replace uh, Peter Lombard's sentences because. Uh, the Summa Theologia is a lot more clear and concise than Peter Lombard's sentences, but he did, that didn't happen during his lifetime like he thought it was would. Um, however, he definitely fit within a sort of coherent group of thinkers, or you might say that uh, there really was a synthesis between philosophy, theology, the world, politics, economics, all of those things still fit together in both Thomas's mind, but also just in the mind of most people during this time period in the late Middle Ages. Uh, actually, I guess you could say that Aquinas's life being in the 13th century was during almost a medieval renaissance. So, But what follows is very quickly the late Middle Ages and into modernity. What happens is that during his life and then directly after, John Dunn Scotus, who is still somewhat of a metaphysical realist, posits a theory of the univocity of being. And this is over and against Aquinas's notion of an analogical understanding of how we speak about God and how uh, reality works. So for Aquinas, God is... Uh, you could actually just stop right there. God is, and then you have the transcendentals uh, that we use to describe God, and everything in some way participates in God. But his point that God is and then everything else exists is a point that keeps with traditional Christian orthodoxy that God is uncreated being. And whatever that is is something that we can't get a handle on because we are and everything else are creatures. So Aquinas is very careful to make that distinction early on. And then, so he needs a way that we can talk about God, which is essentially apophatic in nature. He's following pseudo Dionysius in that sense. Um, But he's going to say that through analogy, we can talk about the good that we understand and realize that that goodness in some way participates in God's goodness. He never, though, thought that we were in any way getting a handle on who God was Uh, in and through our language, but rather that we enter into a life through language 
that allows us to participate in the life of the Trinity. So for Aquinas, it was much more important that we become like God rather than we just know about God. What the shift then that occurred, go ahead, you're going to interrupt. Well, no, I don't want to interrupt yet. Complete the thought. Okay, I say the shift then that it occurs um, with the university of being is that Duns Scotus is positing that when we talk about human goodness and we talk about God's goodness, those things are uh, on a continuum that we're actually getting a handle on what it means for God to be good. So that the category of being, God's being and creaturely being, then is of the same order or univocal. It's of the same sense. And that's a huge shift from the works of Thomas Aquinas. Okay. And, uh, practically everyone else as well. Yeah. So the, and, and several things are, are running into this and maybe I, just as a footnote, let me point to people that you and I have done previous uh, podcasts on Karl Barth and mm-hmm. the Analogia Entis. And we've, and we understand there is that Bartian understanding that uh, is, uh, I think there, there is an agreed consensus that uh, that Bart uh, is not understanding what you are describing uh, as the analogy of being. That there is seems to be confusion uh, also then among some Bartians uh, as to the university of being and analogia entis. We don't need to get off into that. But just to say that uh, there is a huge problem that develops uh, with the shift to the university of being, that the world then is conceived in terms of cause and effect, and that God then is pictured as simply a part of the causal chain uh, that is going to create all sorts of havoc in theology, including then giving rise to what we know of as the problem of evil, which simply did not exist as a problem, at least in the way that it exists for us. Yeah, so what begins happening is um, Aquinas and other theologians were dealing with, at this time period, were dealing with Aristotle. And Aristotle has four causes. So there's a, um, I'm going to forget them. There's a formal cause, a a final cause, a efficient cause, and um, a material cause. What begins to happen, both in the thought of Scotus, but especially in the thought of William of Ockham, who is just directly after Aquinas as well, is those four senses of causality are going to be collapsed into efficient causality, which is cause and effect. Now, formally, it's not as if anybody said, oh, God is a being among beings. What has happened is the language or the way theological language is employed has reduced God to being a being among beings. Um, So I don't, you know, pushing somebody to get them to actually say that probably very unlikely, but it comes out in other ways, and especially in the philosophy of William of Ockham, who is introducing something that becomes known as nominalism. And of course, with all of these things, uh, to just say William of Ockham invented nominalism and what's come since is what he was thinking is probably an oversimplification. But the idea still stands that he thought and taught that universals only exist in name. So what we're really left with is just particular things. 
And which leads him, even though he, and this is over and against metaphysics. So this is a way of um, constructing an anti-metaphysical theology and philosophy in favor of simply using logic, because you can get a handle on words now and categories, and there's no such thing as a universal. So now logic can solve out uh, all, you know, the riddles of the universe. It's sort of a... um, an imminent frame is the word Charles Taylor uses. And we're not quite there yet, but it is that shift. Let me, uh, let me, and I don't, don't, don't let me throw you off your track here because okay. I want you to continue to run this down, but let me just uh, bring some uh, clarifying uh, comments, hopefully clarifying. And that is that th- this all may sound very academic and abstract, but I think what we're describing is the shift in the world between uh, you know the medieval period and the modern period that we inhabit this new world or this new understanding to such a degree that it's uh, you almost have to go through the kind of philosophical theological shift to get at the difference between the worlds that we inhabit. In other words, I think the the Occam, nominalist, volunteerist sort of frame of reference, this, what Charles Taylor, I mean, this is the way Taylor is describing it. This imminent frame is the one that we inhabit. To break free of mm-hmm. this imminent frame, we need, need to do the, the hard work that you're running down. But let me have you go ahead then in, uh, in, in running it, it down the volunteerism and the not what explain again i know we've done it before explain again then the significance of occam's nominalism okay yeah so occam in advocating for nominalism is reducing philosophy to logic he's against metaphysics and he's now uh, you know, looking at the world in such a way where only particular things matter, universals are only a name, they're not real things, which would mean that there's no real participation. So there's not a real participation in particular things in a universal concept, which would also, you know, I mean, essentially you're saying there's no participation then in the individual aspect of or um, a good act that I would do and goodness as a transcendental that is even participating in who God is. So that that's a, has huge implications. But what uh, an easier way to understand what happens and why it really is important is that leads Occam to start thinking of God in terms of what he can do in his power simply within the bounds of logic. And maybe, so whereas, yeah, maybe that's a good place to, to point. I know this is where you're taking us, but uh, that we're we're operating in uh, in theology so much of the time in people like Platinga and apologetics and Swinburne and modern apologetics, we're op- operating in a framework of logic, and the the framework of logic is directly tied to a framework of power, and it's almost that we we imagine that's the only way of thinking, and that's what you're describing for us now. Yeah, so so as I say, an experiment we could do right now is if I were to pose the question, if God is um, all-powerful, which if he's omnipotent, Scripture seems to say that he is, and he decides 
to save somebody, how is it that somebody could not be saved? And all of a sudden, you know, uh, our hands get clammy because we think, oh, this is, you know, Calvinism just makes so much sense and we have to take this question seriously. Um, The problem, though, is what we've done is set up a problem for what God can and can't do. And we're attempting to say that we understand how God's foreknowledge and will works simply based on the bounds of human logic and reason. Aquinas or Augustine or um, you know anybody from the time period before wouldn't have even constructed an issue like that because they're thinking not that God is bound by human logic, what is logically possible for God to do or not to do, or how would God's re- uh, relationship between creation and God work based on logic, but rather based on who God is and his love and wisdom which is really going to then be a question about being. It's a metaphysical, ontological question rather than uh, an anti-metaphysical question of logic. Those are the two options that have been set up in the 14th century, late 13th century. The late 1200s, early 1300s is when Occam is uh, busy writing and working all of this out. That we we inhabit then... Uh... Uh, that there there is entry into maybe maybe if uh uh we describe it as the entry into a particular metaphysic without due recognition i think in the process of the shift that's taken place mm-hmm. uh explain what you mean when you use the term metaphysics and you're you're pitting metaphysics against the idea of uh a, a kind of logic Okay, yeah, so, um, and maybe I, I'm being rather, I'm using the term sort of vaguely and broadly just to describe a conversation that would have, that would be about ontology, that would be about uh, ontology and epistemology, how those things relate, but as they relate to reality, the being of God, what it means for us to be, versus a uh a philosophy that would say, well, we really can't do that because those categories that you would end up using primarily just being that doesn't, there is no such thing. So what we're really doing is just playing with words and what makes sense and what doesn't. And that's the shift from pre-Occam to Occamist thinking to nominalism. That there is the kind of idea that, in, in a modern period that you can in some way get at being and including the being of God in and through the order of logic. Yes, because being isn't even, you know, all it is is the word for an alchemist. Uh, and that, uh, so that the very the, the discussion, I mean, this is what that in a sense, this is what is again recognized in the onto theology. You know, who I don't who coins that word is that Heidegger's word? Um, I'm not for sure if he coins it, but he certainly makes good use of it. And that's what all of these guys are recognizing is that uh, that the the very ground of human thought, not just theology, but philosophy itself kind of takes a, a, a left turn here into uh, the establishment of being. And, of course, I think this is the significance uh, of, of a Heidegger Nazi that he was, is that 
uh, he's going to to uh, describe then uh, a world in which we can't get a handle on being in that way. Mm-hmm. But well, I, I, I've taken you off track. That's here. okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's a shift that's occurring, and it has far-ranging implications. So this is, you know, during the same time period, it's being decided still what is the church going to look like, and um, you have lots of competing schools of thought. So Henry of Ghent, who is still a metaphysician and contemporary with Aquinas, is completely over and against what Aquinas was teaching. And then you have Bonaventure, who is also at the University of Paris with Aquinas. And you also have these new orders of, you know, relatively new of Dominicans and Franciscans, and um, they begin arguing with each other. And so it's a really a tumultuous time. Add in the Avignon papacy of the Great Schism, add in the Black Death, and um, before you know it, the world is in shambles. Um, the papacy is known to be corrupt. You know, we're approaching the 16th century, the 1500s. Uh, the church is corrupt, at least the hierarchy of the church is corrupt, and you begin to have more repeated, you know, reform movements. Finally, you get one monk in Germany who breaks away and really makes, uh, you know, his reform movement works in the sense that it both changes the church and starts a new movement. I'm talking about Martin Luther, of course. Luther thought he was against nominalism. He was educated at the University of Erfurt, which was a nominalist stronghold. But he doesn't ever really break free from um, those bounds. He he is trying to be anti philosophical almost to the sense that he thinks he can repudiate both parts of the realisms that came before and nominalism itself. But you could look at just the way Protestantism frames certain questions that are at the core of what becomes reformed theology. And you realize they're just all wrapped up in this nominalist philosophy as well. And voluntarist philosophy, what what can God do? And we're going to describe that through logic rather than um, you know, who is a God of love and who is a God of peace and who is a God of wisdom and what has God revealed himself to be doing. Now you're so making, all that's happening. You're Go making ahead. a grand indictment here. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm making a lot of quick jumps as well. Of, of, of Protestantism, uh, that it is subsumed under the category of nominalism. Well, I'm saying that it was. Mm-hmm. Now, I would probably agree um, with with your later statement, but all I'm all I would be able to claim with any type of assuredness is that Protestantism got its start mm-hmm. entrenched in nominalism, and that the the char- that the characteristic discussion then in both Luther and Calvinism is in this frame of reference that they themselves have do not seem to have a full grasp on, in which the power of God uh, is the primary frame of reference. Yeah, I mean, I would, I bet you could probably say that Calvin did have a firm grasp on it and just thought he was right. So uh, I, I think Calvin especially probably realized what, you know, his chosen method of thinking, nominalism, voluntarism, was standing over it against and just thought he had it right. Mm -hmm. And and it it does, I mean, Calvinism is just pure logic and pure power. It is, and I I don't know if 
the the very notion of law, logic, mm-hmm. power, those are all very much intertwined as a system of thought, which is interesting in even in basic understanding of New Testament doctrines. You know, when when we talk about the law in the New Testament, it's almost as if we cannot escape this nominalist frame of reference that Calvin is working with, so much so that we imagine, oh, well, what we have to do is just repudiate the category altogether. And I think what we're not recognizing is, no, that the the equation of law and power is not mosaic law, is not God's conception of law. That is a sinful conception of law. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes. And once you escape that, it's amazing, you know, oh, well, there's this whole alternative understanding of what's happening uh, in the, the you know, shift of what the relationship of Christ and law and what Paul is saying about the law. And so, yeah, and one way of looking at this is if you just take the doctrine of irresistible grace. And this one is useful because it isn't just an issue in Protestant thought and with Calvinism. It's also an issue in the Catholic Church at about the same time period. So you have irresistible grace. If God is working in your life and God's grace is present, how would you possibly be able to contradict the will of God? God's all-powerful. You're not. And what's what's happening is we're talking about power as power, human power and God's power as being the same thing. We're talking about the will of God and the will of humans in a univocal sense as well. And at the root of that, we're still talking about God's being and human being in a univocal sense. So the the chain extends back from SCOTUS all the way into this issue of irresistible grace and both Calvinism and what becomes the uh, Banyesian Molinist debate in the Roman Catholic Church. And so you have Banyes, who I forget his... Uh, first name, but I'll have it momentarily. Um, Boy, don't ask me. Domingo, yeah, Domingo Banez. So that we're in 1584. Uh-huh. This is, you know, the time period right after the Counter-Reformation, the Council of Trent. We're in that uh, era. You have just an identical issue pop up in the Catholic Church. And this is going to actually bring us to the problem of evil. So you've got Domingo Banez saying that, uh, and he, he thinks he's arguing from Thomas Aquinas, that predestination has to be centered on divine decrees, because uh, if God says something that it's you know completely binding, God is that efficient cause in this sense. So then if you take the issue of irresistible grace, then it must be that some people have been saved by God's grace and some people haven't. That's the only way to explain what's going on. But as I've already said, this is because we've collapsed everything, being and power and uh, will, those categories into uh, a univocal, a university of being between uh, creatures and God. Huge problem in the Catholic Church. Uh, there's another Jesuit, Luis de Molina, who is arguing against Banez. And uh, an easy way for whoever's listening to this podcast to get a handle on these two is when you hear Banez, just think Calvinists. When you hear Molina, just think Pelagians, because that's essentially a re- it's a reduplication of that type of thing. With Molina, he's talking about uh, foreknowledge. The issue with both of these guys, though, in the time period that they've arisen is that the whole debate is constructed within uh, 
the philosophy of the university of being, and especially within the voluntarist notions of we, we have to be able to explain God in terms of what he logically can do and can't do. So you have the debate raging in the Catholic Church. You have the same thing happening in uh, Calvinist theology, Reformed theology, so the Protestant world. And I think uh, most historians agree that as the 16th century moves on after Luther's death, even Lutheran theology becomes more Reformed. Uh, So Calvin seems to be the clear winner in the Reformation as far as theology goes. And nobody comes a lot. Nobody's even capable of just saying, hold on, I think we're asking the wrong questions. And that's because during the same time period, you have Cardinal Cayetan, who was, uh, you know, a reforming cardinal and um, what is it, Francisco Suarez, mm-hmm. um, who have also written on Thomas Aquinas, but neither of them are writing on Thomas Aquinas to be completely accurate to what Aquinas was saying. They know that. Um, They probably think they're getting him more accurately and correctly than they do, but they both want to be seen as original thinkers and whatnot. So you get these systems of thought that now are treating Aquinas within more nominalist and voluntarist terms. This is where you get Banyas from. Where this comes or intersects with the problem of evil is a part of why these debates are even taking place in the first uh, instance is because of the problem of sin. So how is it that people are sinning or that people suffer if God is somehow completely in control? And Lonergan sums up the issue between both sides, the Banyesians and the Molinists, pretty simply in his uh, dissertation. He writes, it may be asked whether divine knowledge of sin is prior to divine permission of sin, or divine permission of sin is prior to divine knowledge of sin. He'll say that the Molinist system would require the former to be true, so that God has some sort of knowledge about sin before it happens. Or uh, the Banyesian system would require the latter to be true, and that is that the permission of sin is prior to divine knowledge of sin. The issue being that in both senses, we have God caught up in the problem of moral evil. And now people are thinking, how do we get him off the hook? And so those two lines that I just gave are how both Banyez and Molina thought they were getting God off the hook mm-hmm. for sin. And that would be either by just saying, well, God, everything's predestined and God has these decrees, but you know they, they apply absolutely in one sense or the... Middle knowledge is what Molina is usually known for. So Banya's solution, of course, is that God knows what is by causing it. And this is, this is important to what comes next. God knows what is by causing it. God knows what is not by not causing it. Sin is not a reality. Therefore, God knows sin inasmuch as he is not the cause of the opposite of good. What's happened is Banya's <laughs> is thinking in a dualism. Mm-hmm. And, and Molina is too, but we're not going to get into that mess. Banyas is just easier to deal with for our purposes uh, to get into the problem of evil. So he's thinking there is what God causes, and then what isn't, God has not caused. But God has to be an active agent in both senses. And this is because of the way they've constructed God in terms of power and uh, the way they're thinking about being based on these other philosophies that we've already referenced. 
But that leaves you with a huge problem. So you've got the existence of evil, God doesn't cause it, or you've got the existence of good and God causes it in every case. Now we're left with a world where both evil exists and God exists, and what are we going to do about it? And so then, you know, you jump ahead, uh, or you can just read any theodicy that's been constructed from that time on. Mm-hmm. And what happens is people are approaching the problem of evil as if evil really exists, God really exists. Now let's figure out how we can argue that it's still logical to believe in God, even in the face of evil. And that's become even more of an issue in the 20th century when you have such rampant evils as World War One and Two and the Holocaust and the other genocides, you know, Stalinist gulags and Mao Zedong. Um, it just increases the, I guess you could almost just say the nervousness or the anxiety about the existence of evil. And so there's more and more theologians racing to try to explain how it's still logical to believe in God, even though the world's a real crummy place. Maybe another way of describing that is the way that Milbank and Zizek debate the topic. And that is that what they're both saying in that debate in the monstrosity of Christ, Mm -hmm. you know, well, Zizek blames uh, privation theory for bringing on the evils of the 20th century, and Milbank blames uh, thinkers of the stripe of Zizek, radical evil, uh, you know, a kind of atheistic. And maybe what you're describing is, well, the whole frame of the 20th century. In other words, this is not just that you have the rise of Marxist, fascist, forms of thought and possibility that that the evil that comes about what i'm getting at is not just a problem for theology it's the it's a, a, a problem that theology itself has in some way opened the door to that mm-hmm. is that i mean this is you know why bart is uh, so, you know, adamant against uh, what he perceives as the problem. And of course, in, in that he's perceived it as the university of being, as much as he sees the Antologiantis is the Antichrist, uh, you know, a kind of mistaken reference. But I think we can still take his idea that the theological failure is the failure of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Is that too strong? Well, I I think it is. Uh, I don't, I mean, of course, the 20th century, we invented ways of killing people on a mass scale, but I think it's, it is the problem that had been occurring for centuries, even before that. So that, uh, and I think you're right in the sense that it's either, you know, the Milbank and Zizek argument. Zizek essentially saying, well, you know, you theologians haven't taken evil seriously enough. Uh And Milbank saying, well, no, actually, by privation theory, we're taking it more seriously than you atheists or, you know, uh, anybody who's advocating for some type of radical evil. Uh Um, I don't know in the end where that argument gets you. I'm always muddled when I read through the, the book, The Monstrosity of Christ to get to the end. But I think Milbank sums it up rather well in the first chapter of um, it's being reconciled. Right. And he talks, he uses 
the Eichmann trial, Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem, you know, quotes Kant's categorical imperative and Hannah Arendt then writing on the trial famously coins the term or the phrase, the banality of evil. Well, I don't know, you know, does evil as banal really agree with privation theory or does it agree with radical or evil? What is that? I almost think she's just throwing her hands up and saying, here's this problem. And then I think she continues to work on the problem the last decade of her life. Um, But Milbank's point is actually with privation theory, we are agreeing that evil has some kind of ontological reality. It's grounded, however, in a secondary cause, that of human beings Mm -hmm. and of a privation of the good and of a distortion or a corruption of the good based on desiring some lesser good than God rather than being a force unto itself. What I, yeah, I think my point was that what we've entered into in the 20th century is a frame of reference that even when we're doing even Christianity or people imagining they're religious, well, no, actually what the frame of reference is, as, you know, uh, Taylor, uh, Charles Taylor puts it, uh, that, that essentially we're, we've entered into an imminent frame, which is really just an atheistic frame. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that evangelical or maybe, you know, it's, I don't mean to pick on evangelicalism because it's just across the board. Uh, Protestantism. I mean, you can uh, do this in a, in a very practical, ethical way that they're uh, that that for all practical purposes, they're they're ethically that this group of people, which I'm not, you know, they're practicing atheists. But what you're describing Mm -hmm is they're not only practicing atheists, that they've arrived at a theology that is inherently atheistic, even as it acknowledges God, because the God that is being acknowledged is a part of a chain of being. Yes. So what happens in the 20th century, and you can, uh, actually, you can do this for a wide swath of authors, because William Lane Craig is, of course, Roman Catholic. Uh, Richard Swinburne, who I think was at one time either an evangelical or an evangelical Anglican, is now Eastern Orthodox. John Hick, who is um, you know some version of Protestant uh, belief or non-belief, however you want to <laughs> categorize that. Um, but anyway, they're all approaching this issue the same. So they start with evil. And then we'll mention God and try to argue for some way to logically still sustain belief in God in the face of evil, which is just completely backwards from what you have in Augustine, Dionysius, and Aquinas. Uh, Though Aquinas, and I I think Augustine as well, both treat evil um, several places in their work, and Aquinas has a big book just on evil, the place where I'm focusing in, and even there it follows the same outline in the Summa, Aquinas mentions evil when he's talking about God, not the other way around. Augustine mentions evil when he is writing like a catechism about belief in God and how we teach people the Encridian. Uh, Dionysius mentions evil when he in the divine names. So he's also doing a doctrine of God. And so that's a true theistic approach. It ends up being a theory of evil, what evil is or isn't, rather than being we've got this huge problem and how are we going to sustain our belief in a God really? And, and we, I was saying in the face of evil, but I think you're right. It's in the face of atheism 
how do we sustain faith in God even when we don't really believe? How is, or when the world that we've constructed doesn't really allow for belief? Yeah, and and, and I don't know how to get at, you know, you've say, stated it uh, well that, that, that the shift involves, you know, Taylor is running it down. There's this imminent frame of reference that you could describe as materialism but but of course, what he's describing is not just materialism, but it's it's the whole frame in which theology is going to work itself out, and that imminent frame, that disenchanted world, is the one that we inhabit. It is a world that, uh, you know, when there uh, previous discussions of evil, well, no, they still live in a world in which God holds all things together. Uh, that being is conceived on a different, you know, it, it, it is not simply uh, a causal chain, but it's uh, God stands outside of that causal chain. Um, and so the, the very frame of reference, and that's, that's obviously Taylor's uh, usage of the term, has shifted up. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And so uh, I think what we've done so far in this conversation is kind of say where we're at and how we got there. And what I would like to advocate for is um, much like many 20th century, this is not original, much like many 20th century theologians, is we can actually find a more robust, deep and rich Christianity in the patristic time period, perhaps not without its own flaws or problems, but if we go back and we retrieve that Christianity and are willing to uh, undergo the rigorous you know, historical studies that have to take place in a process of dialectics so that we appropriate that in a sensible and, and a wise way and to our modern situation, that we can really make a lot of headway in theology. And if, if we keep trying, on the other hand, if we just were to keep trying to work our way out of the the vein of thought that we find ourselves in from within, I think that's a never-ending process because it's not just that, oh, you know, Calvinism gets this or that wrong, or uh, I just was picking on Calvinism because we have today so much, or, um, you know, you can look at the revisionist theologies of the 20th century. Oh, you know, they've got a lot right, but they get this and that wrong, and we can kind of work our way out. Actually, and this is to riff off of John Milbank, what we need to do is to realize that this whole conversation is taking place because there's been a fundamental misunderstanding of ontology, what it means for us to be in relationship to God. We have to then go back to a time period when that was central to theology and try to recapture that vision so that we might renew uh, a, an orthodoxy or a radical orthodoxy, perhaps. And and describe for us then, and I think you're you're seeing the shift in a lot of places uh, that there is a kind of appreciation for an Eastern Orthodox theosis or the idea of participation. The various theories of you know there's a new understanding that well what it means to be saved has to do then with uh, participation with transformation. That in some way that previous discussion uh, did not allow for it. Uh, describe what uh, what that shift might look like back to a patristic mm-hmm. understanding. Yeah, interestingly enough, it began with you know 
studies on history and studies on hermeneutics and language so that you get throughout the 20th century. I mean, Martin Heidegger, uh, Hans Georg Gadamer, you have other, you know, Roman Catholics, the Nouvelle Theology, uh, all of those things, all, all of the, those thinkers rather are picking up on the fact that something happened in history, the history of philosophy where people shifted the way their focus on how they're approaching what it means to be human or, and as for Christians, what does it mean to be human in relationship to God? And so they finally came up with a, a way of reading that realized there was a lost world. I think that was lost on most people in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Well, once they've said that, they then start to try to recapture this and are more careful about how they're reading historical figures, which was a great stride in the right direction. But in the end, I think it is what's happening maybe in radical orthodoxy yeah. or in a lot of Roman Catholic theologies right now. And that's to say we need to return to the core doctrines of Christianity, which is what does it mean for us as humans to be in relationship to this Trinitarian God? Whenever you read through the creeds, uh, the first ecumenical creeds, that's what the focus is. It's on the church and the relationship of the church to a Trinitarian God. Well, to even have that conversation, you have to have a conversation about uh, ontology. You're having to have a conversation about being. And so that then filters into things like salvation, and it becomes apparent very quickly that salvation isn't something that can be constructed along uh, you know, these logical lines of how does God's grace work, but it is actually, again, a question of about being. It's a question about participation. And I think the recapturing of that is the work that's being done by um, at least productive or positive uh, original and creative theologies right now. Um and uh let you know maybe we could sort this out i I'm, i may be pulling something here on you that that you're not prepared to do i think there's adequate and inadequate uh recognition of this uh people like jean-luc marion seems stuck himself in a kind of understanding uh in which he he continues you know this is this is part of what i think is uh, the problem in a modernist frame, you have, you know, Caputo, you get all these guys writing uh, as if uh, it, it, they call themselves postmodern. But in a sense, it's like they're stuck in this modernist frame of reference, recognizing its inadequacies, recognizing that it's crashed and burned to a large degree, but enjoying the heat of the fire. Uh, and, and we don't, as Christians, I don't think we need to stay there. Uh, as Christians, yeah. we actually have something better than the failure of logic, the failure of, you know, uh, a, a particular form of theology, mm-hmm. the failure of ontotheology. Uh, and who would yeah. give us a good, okay. and would you say, well, and I, I, when I was referencing Milbank and Zizek, I, I didn't uh, in that I, uh, I didn't. Uh, obviously, I think Milbank's picture of privation theory is the correct one. My understanding is though that Milbank and Zizek uh, that it's almost like uh, they, they're not they're not able to communicate. That I think there is some uh, the profound atheism of Zizek, I think is one 
that Milbank may be missing, but I think would agree with if he if he got the point. And that is that Zizek's picture of this big other, Zizek's picture of a world in which, uh, you know, we, we have uh, the possibility of a radical evil, which, again, I'm not acknowledging. I'm just saying that in this atheistic world, this atheistic frame of reference, that I think he sh- in this that uh, is a shared frame of reference, He's pointing out that evil or, you know, a kind of big other or uh, a a kind of death drive is all you got. You can manipulate that. And so how do you get outside of that? You don't get outside of that by engaging Zizek within that frame of reference. Neither do you get outside of it in the way of, Swinburne or Platanga, Platanga or, uh, you know, the various apologists by working within that frame of reference, because you'll just, it's, it, it just like continues to produce what it is already atheism. Uh, but rather we need to, there, there needs to be a complete shift. And that's what you're describing. Yeah. And I'm not for sure that any of us have, uh, you know, I'm not really for sure how much headway there's been made because it's just such a monumental task. Uh, who I think of, though, as somebody who, uh, when I read, I'm at least taken beyond where I'm at, is actually a 19th century thinker, Soren Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Kierkegaard is prophetic in that way that he's condemnatory of the present age and it's the age that we're still in and I think still entrenched him and I don't you know he didn't think that he himself had somehow managed to work his way out of it and I'm not for sure that even uh I'm not for sure that a genius could work their way out of it I, and I don't, I'm thinking of him more as a prophet than a genius mm-hmm. um which is what I think usually what we have as geniuses doing the best that they can. And I think there's headway being made. I just, I don't know that we're out of the woods, but what you do get in Kierkegaard is at least a vision for Christianity to say, uh, let's take a step back and put ourselves under the judgment of the, of Christianity, which for him, I really do think it would include, you know, scripture, the tradition, uh, and even a, you know, a good healthy dose of our relationship to God in the now through prayer and participation in the church, that that's, that's probably the way we're going to work our, our way into a more uh, real, a more believing Christianity. And this is, this is what I think what many people have recognized. This is the radical Orthodox guys. This is Stanley Howes. They're all reading Kierkegaard. And of course, Milbank will point us back to the, predecessor of Kierkegaard, and that's Haman, uh, who is, is in, a, in a way, you can read Haman, and Haman, who is acquainted with, with Kant, it's like these two men who were acquaintances, maybe friends, inhabit two different worlds, and it's Haman who recognizes this. It's Haman who says to Kant, don't you understand you're a nihilist? Yeah. Yeah. And so in his position, of course, is, you know, an ironist, 
a friend, um, just a believing Christian, is he wasn't able. I don't know that we're to the point of writing the next Summa, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know that we're to the point of synthesizing a new system. To be a bit Hegelian, the Owl of Minerva only flies at dusk, and (laughs) the sun is taking a long time to set. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, this conversation, it is a a conversation that, if you could, I think we that we lose a lot of people in this. That people just throw up their hands. But I think uh, again, it's the part of the complication is uh, that people inhabit a particular world, a particular frame of reference. They've gotten there. They don't know that they inhabit this frame of reference or this world. Again, Charles Taylor is is valuable here, just in the way he describes this. Uh, and and even when you explain to them, oh well, don't you understand that your under that the philosophical theological world in which the particular problems that you pose, you know, this is the the even in Christian churches uh, that we have people who you know pose themselves as being primarily anti-Calvinist. Yeah, but they're still working in Calvin's frame of reference. And they can't understand that. They just imagine that, well, the way you combat Calvinism is to add a kind of, you know, doctrine by doctrine. But, of course, what you just described is, well, the problem behind Calvinism is nominalism. The problem with nominalism, it is a it's a, the, the wrong picture of the world. You just need to start over mm-hmm. and re-envision, inhabit an alternative worldview. Yes. Yeah, I think that's true. And so, um, you know, and as you were saying, I think this is a hard conversation. It's also a conversation I think we might have tried to have in another podcast. So we probably should have said at the beginning, suffer through this one, too, because it's probably a bit better and more developed. Um, But I think that is the continual challenge to be reflective enough to try to at least locate ourselves and then do the hard work or the constructive work or uh, of trying to get out of those uh, systems that we're already so entrenched in. This is, And that's the point of Christianity. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're, <laughs> that's, we're not going to do it ourselves. Right. That's, that is what God is doing for us is he's saving us from these things. But he's saving us not apart from our participation in that salvation yes. work. Yeah. And so to imagine that that salvation is an ignorant, a process that you can just continue to engage in ignorance. Uh, Yeah, this is the as I've just started a a new theology class uh, uh, through Forging Plowshares. And as we I I always do, I I introduce the class by defending the very task of theology. Well, the reason that it is necessary to do that, I mean, imagine an, uh, uh, in a, you know, a, a pre-modern or in a, the age of Aquinas, having to defend the theological task, uh, having to say, you know, why do we need this thing? Again, it's sort of like uh, we've reduced ourselves to such a degree to pragmatics, to logic, uh, that we can't even understand that uh, the life of the mind, the realm of thought, 
uh, is determinative of the quality of life that we have. And yet the world that we, this disenchanted flat world that so many of us inhabit, uh, I think is, uh, it does not put any kind of premium on the, the, the life of the mind. And so you have to start over and say, okay, well, we do theology because uh, this is the very way, you know, talking about God, this transformation that we go through is the way that we begin to inhabit uh, the alternative culture, the alternative being the alternative people. And so there, uh, this discussion today, it's a wide ranging discussion uh, you know, you could frame it as the problem of evil, but of course, <clears throat> it's not just that. It's that uh, we we've gone through this. It's the problem of being. It's the problem. Yeah, the problem of being. And that's an endless conversation. <clears throat> yeah, but it gives us a different uh, uh, way of. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people. I don't think we need to minimize that. You know, I think there's a whole group of emerging theologians that I would call them post-postmodern theologians mm -hmm. that actually have, have recognized this. There have been a, you know, and in a very practical way, the recognition that uh, exegesis of Scripture and inhabiting that, that world requires, first of all, that you recognize your own world and that it, mm -hmm. it is, uh, it is a, you know, a, a different place. So, I'm thinking here about it, things that may seem completely tangential to this discussion, but, you know, thinking about who is it, uh, John, uh, the, the, the picture of, of the lost world of Genesis. Uh, the, okay, yeah, John Walton. John Walton's picture there. It, it, it would seem to almost have nothing to do with this conversation, but what he's done, what Richard Hayes, you know, N.T. Wright, you could just go through the... Uh, that uh, in in the radical orthodox, the the Stanley Houses, I think what they've all recognized uh, is that we've so framed our reading of Scripture in a this modernist, uh, nominalist, volunteerist frame that it's almost like we don't have access to the Hebraic uh, understanding mm -hmm. that was there. And I think that's that's what's at stake in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Tell me, give me a, a your uh, give me a conclusion then, Thomas Thomas Aquinas on evil. What would be your grand summation and conclusion? Uh, well, I think that uh, my interest actually, I would just state why I think this conversation is helpful, or why would you go back and read somebody like Thomas Aquinas? to get a handle on evil is that it's an entry. If, if you do the historical work, it becomes an entry into an alternative way of thinking that helps us engage better in a process or the operation of dialectics where we begin to see our own point of view deconstructed as we engage, uh, you know, a horizon far from us. And what we come out with probably isn't exactly what Aquinas thought. I don't think we can ever just regain those sensibilities, but at least we gain a sensibility for thinking about theology, reality, human, and in a real sense, you know, a very practical way, human suffering and moral evil 
that allows us to focus more upon who God is, what he's doing about it, and who he has revealed himself to be, than immediately going on the defense as if God needs a defender. I think that's a fine summation. John, thank you for this. This has been an exciting discussion. Well, thank you.